All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 is where we will be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath a seat around you somewhere. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and open up with us. Matthew 28 is where we'll be. Glad that you are here. Again, want to welcome you. My name is Mike Skinner, the pastor here at the church. We're glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. We're wrapping up a sermon series called Family Portraits. And so the last few weeks, we have walked through the different core values that we have here at the church, the different things that we hold as dear to our hearts, and the different kind of characteristics that we try to run after and attain to be the people that we think God has called us to be. Um, and so we'll wrap up that series this morning by looking at our mission statement here at the church. But we have some big things coming up in the future. Um, if you're not aware, every week we have these little worship guides. Okay, They usually sit right outside in this hallway on the, the bench there. Um, and they've got usually announcements, so this is your best place for information coming up. Uh, and on the inside, usually like sermon notes and some quotes and things like that. Uh, again, uh, so all the things coming up will usually be here in the worship guide, uh, just if you're not aware of that. Also, we send out a family talk email every week that has information about things coming up at the church. If you're not on that email list, for whatever reason, uh, please see me or see somebody here in leadership of the church, and we'll get you on that email list so you can kind of stay in the loop because we've got some important things coming up. Uh, next week, we'll be starting our next sermon series. It'll be a book study over the book of Daniel. We'll call it Resident Aliens, okay, this idea of living in exile, um, living in a place that's not your ultimate home um, as Daniel lived in Babylon. And so I'm really pumped up about that series. We'll walk through verse by verse, line by line, the book of Daniel, uh, and it'll be a good time. We have an elder-led prayer service coming up on June 15th. So that's a Saturday on June 15th at 4 o'clock. We're going to have a other Lord prayer service. Kids are welcome. Okay, so this is the first time we've done that, but we'll have some age-appropriate prayer stations for your kiddos. Uh, so this is a family kind of event. We're hoping that you'll be able to come out and join us. Uh, we'll make a promise to you we'll be done by 5 o'clock. Okay, there's an hour-long window there, so you can be out. You can be back at home or at dinner, wherever you need to be. Okay, so 4 to 5, if you make plans to attend that, that's June 15th coming up on a Saturday. And last announcement before we get started Elephant in the Room is back, okay? Don't call it a comeback, but it's returning this summer. Uh, if you remember this, Elephant in the Room is something we started last year. We had like four or five sessions. It's a kind of forum for the church to talk about issues that normally don't get talked about in the church because they're controversial and kind of dividing and things like that. And so last year we did abortion, homosexuality, war and death penalty, hell, a missing one, politics, yeah, all the fun stuff, right? Uh, and what it is is you come up and there will be two presenters, okay, and they both present kind of the different sides to the issue. Um, so we had a, a against homosexuality, homosexuality is sin. Then we had someone arguing that homosexuality is not a sin, okay? And they kind of present their case biblically and theologically and historically. And there's kind of a give and take for a couple minutes, and then it opens up to Q&A, okay? And then kind of we get into this discussion. And if you were at the ones last year, can you can you, uh, can you you guarantee, can you back me up here? It was a good time? Yeah, yeah it was good. It was it was. Probably the best attended thing we've ever done on a Sunday morning. Uh, and so no one left crying. No one left. Okay, no one left the church. There were no big divisions. It was just this beautiful time of healthy and open discussion and study. And so we're still working on topics. We'll have three coming up this summer. The first will be June 17th, uh, Monday night, then June 24th and July 1st. We'll have three back-to-back -back on Monday nights. If you have an interesting topic you think might work um, for that kind of a thing, nothing's off-limits. Send it my way, email it to me, those kind of things. We'll add it to the pot of things we're considering, okay? But put that on your calendar. Trust me, you'll want to be there uh, when we get started with that. All right, Matthew 28. We're going to pick it up in verse 16 as we finish off our uh, family portrait series. Let's read together Matthew 28, verse 16. I'm reading out of the ESV translation, English Standard Version. And it reads like this. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, so our mission statement here at the church, if you've been with us for a while, hopefully you'll know this, be able to kind of chant along with me, okay? It's to to glorify God as we make disciple, making disciples of Jesus Christ. Kind of a mouthful, okay? Kind of some weird wording there, to glorify God as we make disciple, making disciples of Jesus Christ. And, And this is kind of the heartbeat of who we are and who we want to be here at the church. This is kind of what we try to run all of our programs and events through, um, kind of run all our staff through. Are we doing this? Is this the goal that we're hitting? This is the goal that we're reaching, making disciple, making disciples of Jesus Christ. So to be a disciple of Christ is simply to be one who follows him, okay? One who believes in him, one who has responded to him in obedience and trust and faith and follows after him. And you'll notice, not only do we want to make disciples here at the church, not only do we want to kind of join God's mission in the world, But we want to make disciples who then go on and make disciples. We think this idea of joining in God's mission is at the central kind of um, heartbeat. It's it's kind of at the core of what it means to follow Christ. I mean, at the core of who God is, the triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, I think it would be appropriate to say that God himself is missional. God himself is on mission. He's been drawing toward creation, trying to rescue and redeem and save creation. And when you and I join in that mission, we're being more like God, and we're being more like Christ as he is presented to us in the Gospels, one who's come to seek and to save the lost. We want to join God in his mission. Now, there's this thing in our, our mission statement. I call it the logic of multiplication, okay? Um, the logic of multiplication. That's where the wording gets kind of funny, the disciple-making disciples, okay? Not only do we want disciples, but we want disciples who then make disciples. So there are three levels, I think, to a community growing, okay? A community like ours growing, three different levels and most churches operate on one level. Occasionally you get to level two. Very few people get to level three, but level three is where we're headed and where we want to go, okay? So, so here are the levels. The first level of community growth, church growth here, is substitution. This would be someone who is going to another church who now starts coming to our church. So all that's really been done, right, is they've substituted churches. Um, you haven't kind of gone after a, a group of people who are unchurched, who are not in church, not connected to a body of Christ. Now, there's nothing particularly wrong with that, okay? We don't apologize, we don't feel bad for that. There are times and situations and circumstances where you're not getting fed in a certain church, okay? And people have kind of migrated over to our church for various reasons, okay? We're not kicking you out, making you feel guilty, making you feel like you're not welcome, okay? Any of those things. Um, but we are saying we want to go after the people who aren't in church on Sunday, too, I mean, if you really kind of look back at the statistics of how churches grow, um, almost all church growth stops at this level. For the past hundred years or so, most churches in America have just swapped members. And there's the same group of people every Sunday morning by themselves unreached. I mean, really unreached, with very little activities or movement directed towards them. Um, Because people who don't normally go to church on Sunday aren't going to show up on Sunday to find out about your church. Does that make sense? Right? You have to do other things. To get them there. And we've, for a long time, in kind of the Western Christian model, um, thought that they'll come to us, right? You build it, they'll come, and then we'll teach them about Jesus. Well, they're not coming anymore. And so the people who are coming are all the same, about 40%. I mean, the numbers, I think, would shock you at how unchurched, um, as far as, like, belonging and plugging into a local community people are. So 
a lot more people would probably say on a survey they're Christian. But in terms of living it out, and then really just in terms of belonging to a community, the numbers shrink, right? And no one really goes after those people, or at least effectively. So you've got substitution. The next level will be addition, okay? This one's someone who is not at a church, okay? Not plugged into a community, not following Christ, comes on board, gets plugged in, starts to follow Christ, those kind of things. That's a great, that's a great, beautiful thing. The third level, though, is multiplication, And that's where not only do you add somebody, a family, a group of people, but then those people go and add people. You see the difference there? You're not going plus one, plus one, plus one, plus five, plus one, plus one, plus five. You're going plus one, and that one is then going to themselves go reach various people. It it spreads itself out in this network of relationships, this network of influence. It has this kind of exponential effect to it, this kind of domino effect to it. You bring in more people, and then those people go bring in more people and go reach more people. And this seems to be the kind of scheme that Jesus has in mind when he thinks about how his gospel, how his good news is going to go out into the world. I'll have disciples who go and make disciples, and those disciples will go and make disciples. I mean, it's, 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 it's God's pyramid scheme, okay? I kind of hate to say it like that, right? It's the great Ponzi scheme of the trying, trying God. It's, okay, you, it's just, just, it keeps expanding out in this kind of web, this kind of this network of, of discipleship and evangelism. And so we want to get to that third level, right? that third level of multiplication. I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I, I can tell you that the church has made big jumps in the last four or five years in getting to kind of where we want to be as a church. We've still got important steps to go, though. Um, but that's where we're headed. That's where we want to go. We want to be a community of people that sees others become disciples who weren't disciples. And then we want to see those people take forward the mission and then invest and create even more disciples. And in that way, we think we'll see the good news spread in our community. We think we'll see God's glory magnified in front of us. And so to do that, we need you. I mean, we need your help. We need your commitment. We need your buy-in. Um, it's kind of a team effort. One of the things we'll talk about today is it's We've kind of, in the past, exported it to a group of staff. Not just the church, but, but the whole kind of Western Christianity, the whole model. We've kind of said the pastors will do that, and we'll kind of do our own thing. But that's not really the biblical model. The biblical model is every single one of us. We're missionaries. Every single one of us is called to this mission. It's called to adopt this uh, for our own. And, and so we need buy-in. We need commitment. Um, one of the things we, we ask every now and then around here, and, and probably should ask more, is... Have you, okay, particularly those of you who have been with us for a while, have you adopted this mission statement? I mean, have you really kind of owned this and taken this on as your own? And then for, for those of you maybe who've been visiting with us for a few weeks, the process of becoming a member here, we call it kind of covenant servant, uh, covenant membership. Um, the process is really just to, to kind of get to know the church. Usually I'll sit down with you, one of our elders sit down with you, and then to make a verbal commitment to say, this is who we are, this is where we're going. Do you want to help us get there? I mean, do you want to live life with us? Do you want to worship God with us? Do you want to go on mission with us and then fill in where, where we need to fill in? This is, this is where we want to go to glorify God as we make disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we've got this text. I think it's the core text for us, Matthew 28. Um, and it's this amazing text. There's so much kind of packed in here tight. Now, I enjoy it for a couple of reasons. The first is that in my own life, if you tried to pinpoint a, a moment in my life, where I really became a Christian, I really started to follow Jesus, it would be reading this, this passage um, the summer before my senior year in high school. Um, so some of you who know my kind of story know that I went through some serious kind of depression and sickness things in high school, uh, and uh, 
kind of took a year off just from life, my junior year of high school. And then the summer for my senior year, I have, I'm an insomniac, okay, so I'm up all night, and out of the blue, I just kind of pick up the book of Matthew and start reading through it. And I can remember exactly where I even was in my parents' uh, house, in my room in my parents' house, sitting on the floor next to the closet, reading the book of Matthew while everyone's asleep because there's just nothing else to do, and getting to Matthew 28 and reading in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and just kind of going, I think I believe this. And I don't really know what to do with it, okay? I don't really know how that applies to my life, which seems to be horribly screwed up beyond repair. But I think this is true. I think Jesus did die. I think he did resurrect. And I think when he says everything is his, he means it. And whatever that means for my life, I better start figuring it out. I better start working it out. And so got plugged into a church, got discipled, got mentored, those kind of things. So, so reading this text always just kind of brings up those memories for myself as well. But it's also this kind of haunting text because it's Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew. So each of the four Gospels ends kind of differently. And then in Acts, you'll see Jesus talk to the disciples as well. But in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the last thing in this long Gospel that Jesus says to his disciples. The last words. And there's this kind of haunting atmosphere to it, I feel like. It's, it's Jesus setting the agenda for what will happen once he's gone. You'll remember Jesus, he dies, he resurrects, and then he ascends into heaven, he leaves. But he wasn't done doing what he wanted to do. He wasn't done with his kingdom movement, his mission of, of bringing heaven to earth. And so this is him kind of, again, setting into place, setting into effect his, his kingdom agenda. And I think there's this, this kind of haunting and beautiful and challenging aspect to it of there. Okay, so if you look at this paragraph, let's read it one more time um, as we dive into it. Matthew 28, verse 16. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. The 11 disciples, remember there's not 12 anymore. One of them jumped ship. You've got 11 now. 11 went to Galilee. So this is where Jesus grew up, where he uh, did his ministry before he went to Jerusalem, where he died. They go to the Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. I don't know how you're doubting at this point, okay? But, but there's even some doubt here. I don't know. I've heard about this stuff happening, right? This resurrection stuff. Um, and Jesus comes. In verse 18, he says to them, here it is, this, this kind of terse, tight paragraph. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, often when we're studying the Bible, it's helpful to understand kind of the structure of what's going on. Um, and so it's helpful to kind of put on your English class hat, right, and to go back to kind of the whiteboard and start diagramming out sentences every now and then, um, just kind of get the main thrust of the passage here. What you would do if you were reading this in its original language and you were kind of looking at it sentence-wise and structure-wise is you'd realize there's only one command in this entire, this entire paragraph. Um, now, it looks like a couple more commands to us when it gets translated into English, but really in the Greek, there's one command. It's this command right in the middle here, verse 19, make disciples. This is the one imperative, the one big command, okay? Everything else kind of revolves around this. And now this command is bracketed, it's framed by two theological truths, okay? Two truths about God and, and the work that he's done in the world, okay? The first one, Jesus says at the beginning, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We'll call that like the kingdom reality truth. That's what starts off. And then it, it's bracketed with a promise at the end, right? And behold, I'll be with you to the end of the ages. So you have this command, make disciples. Why will all authority has been given to me and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And then you've got three adverbs, modifiers. They're really participles, okay? I know your eyes are rolling back in your head, okay? <laughs> Horrible memories of English class coming up right now. Some of you are just fresh out of school, okay? And you're like, no, I, I got rid of this. We're done for three months. 
We'll just bear with you real quick, okay? Parsable, it's kind of this verbal modifier. And what's doing, you've got three of them. So these are just three things modifying. If you're diagramming out the sentences, I know I'm losing you. I know I'm such a dork. But you've got this, <laughs> you've got this line, make disciples, and then three modifiers. It's going and baptizing and teaching. Now, again, in, in our English, go looks like just command here, right? But it's really, it's a, it's a participle. It's an ante, it's okay, in the Greek. And, and it maybe should be better translated going, or as you go. I mean, it fits right in here with the other two participles. You've got make disciples, the command, going, make disciples. Baptizing, make disciples. And teaching, make disciples. All authority has been given to me, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Make disciples. Go out and create, as C.S. Lewis would call it, little Christ. People who follow me and act like me and believe in me and trust in me. People who incarnate my way of living in the world around me. Go make disciples. So he starts with this, this truth here. I think it's very important. Verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says that in some real sense here, something he didn't have has now been given to him. Absolute authority, control, command. He's now reigning. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Gospels, the story of the Gospels is not about whether you can go to heaven or hell after you die. We've kind of gotten into that framework. We think all of religion, right, is just about going to the right place after we die. Heaven or hell, we're all going there. But really, the story of the Gospels, Jesus comes and he says, hey, God's kingdom, heaven, is coming here. The world is changing. The world is, is getting um, reshaped around what God desires for it. The, the world has gone wrong. All these things have been um, shaped out of place. They've kind of been distorted and perverted. And I'm changing things around. I'm taking back control of my good creation. He just comes and says, the kingdom of God is here. In a sense, what you see here in Matthew 28 is the, the phrase, mission accomplished. Job done. I have authority. It's been given to me. Again, however you have to work that on your mind in terms of God's sovereignty, okay, and in what sense Jesus didn't have control before versus when it was given to him, this is what Jesus says here. Now, this is something that's prophesied in the Old Testament, that God's king would come and Yahweh, God the Father, would hand him the kingdom. Daniel 7, after his work of defeating God's enemies, defeating sin and death, when he rises in victory, Romans 1 would say, that's when he's declared the son of God in, in the resurrection, so this is the king of all of creation on heaven and on earth. Now what you've seen as you, as you read through the book of Matthew, if you were just to sit down and read through it, oftentimes we break up the Bible into little chunks, right? Little verses and pieces. I mean, it's, it's a letter. It's a book. It's kind of meant to see and take in all at once. If you were to read through the book of Matthew, you see there's this kind of battle between Jesus and in a sense the rest of the world. And when Jesus shows up, and again, Remember, he's reclaiming authority over creation. And as he walks around, you're starting to see there's all these things that are wrong with creation that Jesus is coming into conflict with. So in fact, just in Matthew chapter 8, you see Jesus calming a storm, okay? As if nature was not doing what nature was supposed to be doing. As if you could trace that back to Genesis 3, when sin enters the world and, and it's told us even the earth itself won't work the way God had intended it to work. And Jesus assumes authority over the storm, over nature. And Jesus heals a person with leprosy. Jesus, when he meets sickness, does not kind of um, say, you know what, maybe this has a, a part in the overall plan and just trying to live with it. Jesus gets really frustrated and meets sickness. He sees a sick person and says, that's not what God intended. And he says, just get, get it gone. Be rid. 
No more. Be healthy. He casts it out. He reclaims his authority. Everywhere Jesus goes, you're seeing these little tiny battles where Jesus is bringing God's will into that situation, where the kingdom is arriving, where earth is starting to look like heaven, where God's will reigns completely. And even in Matthew 8, so you've got the storm, you've got the leper. Uh, in Matthew 8, you've also got Jesus driving out demons. Okay? He comes to what appears to be in the Gospels a demon, demonic, satanic-controlled world. Remember Luke 4? Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world, and Jesus doesn't argue with him about whether he has them or not. He just says, I'm going to get them a different way than worshiping you. He seems to come into this world where demons have this kind of place of authority and place of power. They've been given this kind of reign over us. We're slaves to them. And he comes in and says, leave. Your time is over. Get out. And the demons kind of cower in front of him. Do you remember this? In the Gospels, the demons go, what have you come to do to us? They're kind of confused about why he's there and why he's kicking them out of what they thought belonged to them. He says, get, get out of here. The kingdom of God is coming. And this is Jesus at the end, after his work on the cross, after his resurrection, coming saying, I'm the king. I reign. My plan is accomplished. Mission accomplished. Um, you, you should notice Jesus' kind of triumphal attitude here at the end of the Gospels. Um, he seems to have this idea that there's been this victory that's been won. And sometimes I think we've lost that in the church. We, we push off completely Jesus' victory until the, the end of time, when he comes back during his second coming. And we miss out on this real sense that I think makes sense of the whole New Testament, that something happened historically in our world at the cross and with Jesus' resurrection that changed things. There's this power unleashed. The kingdom had arrived in this incomplete sense, but in this real sense. The kingdom had come. There's this, this triumphal attitude here. Uh, David Bentley Hart says that the heart of the gospel is this ineradicable triumphalism, a conviction that the will of God cannot ultimately be defeated and that the victory over evil and death has already been won. As, as the disciples go out into the world, we saw this in the book of Acts, they go out with this message of victory. They go out with this message like, hey, we need to tell you about a battle that's just been fought, and, and we're the winners. Sin and death has been defeated. You and I can be freed. We can live in the life that God has always desired for us. We can be free from sin. We can be free from the fear enslavement to death. We can live life in the kingdom. So this is kind of the, the kingdom reality that undergirds Jesus' command here to go make disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, therefore, okay, there's this logical consequence to it. So because I now have reclaimed creation, because the kingdom has arrived, now you have a job to go do. Now watch this. Jesus, as he brings the kingdom, isn't planning on finishing his work when he leaves, when he ascends into heaven. Oftentimes, I think we have a very weak view of the church, a very distorted view of the church, very um, kind of diminished view of the church and our role in Christ's plan to bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Um, but Jesus has kind of set things up the way he thinks they're supposed to operate. And he has this kind of master plan for how things are going to go. If you'll remember the book of Acts, so we just finished preaching through the book of Acts. Um, you'll forgive me for referencing a lot. In the book of Acts, the beginning, it starts out with, these are things Jesus continued to do and teach, even though he's not there. Physically, right? This is Jesus' plan, continuing to work itself out. Again, I think this is something we kind of maybe overlook sometimes. So Jesus in John 14 is going to tell the disciples that when I leave, it'll be good news for you, right? And you think, well, we'll be sad, right? Jesus will leave. Sometimes we think, wouldn't everything be easier if Jesus was here, right? I mean, don't you think we could have solved a whole lot of more problems, right? 
Instead of trying to wait for the weather to die down for the baptism, like, Jesus, look, can you calm this for me? Calm the storm, right? Why, did, why would he leave us? Well, Jesus and John seems to think we'll be better off for the time being if he's in heaven. If he sends the Spirit to us. You remember John 14 says, I'll send the Spirit, it'll be better for you, and you'll do things greater than what I've been doing. And people always look at the verse and go, what in the world is happening there? Um, I'm not sure completely. I can tell you this. I don't think Jesus meant you'll do lesser things than I did. He said you'll do greater things than I did. I don't know exactly what that means, right? I just know that doesn't mean the opposite. Jesus seems to think this kind of mission is going to continue on through my people. In John 17, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, I have accomplished, he's praying to the Father, I've accomplished the work you sent me here to do. He actually uses the same words he uses on the cross. He says, it is finished. But in John 17, it's weird because it's before Jesus dies and resurrects. And you got to ask the question, what's he think is finished? What's he accomplished? Well, gathering 12 men who would become 11 and then become 12 again, who'd be able to carry on his mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit, after he died and resurrected. What you're seeing when Jesus comes to disciples, this is his strategy. This is his kind of mega arch overstretching plan for how his kingdom movement, which he has started and inaugurated, will keep going on through the world. And here's what it involves. It involves disciples, people who follow him, going and making more disciples. Like heralds of a king who's just won a great battle. Who go out and say, hey, I've got news. There's a new king in town. And you're invited to come participate in what life looks like underneath his reign. The old reign of sin and death and evil and corruption is ending. It's, a, it's like the night. It's passing away. The, the day is dawning. And come learn with us what it looks like and feels like and how to live as those of the day, those of the light. Jesus says, go and make disciples because I have, I have accomplished my, my victory. I have implemented what I've come to do. So the kind of first level here is, is that you and I have to be disciples, okay? If, if we're trying to, how does this text apply to us, right? Well, we've got to be the kind of people who follow Christ. We need to be the kind of people who are slowly but surely maturing into his followers, people who are his disciples, who say, what you tell us to do, we'll do. Where you tell us to go, we'll go. The kind of person you tell us to be, we'll be. And then we adopt, again, this kind of mission that he's given us which is to go and make disciples. Now we've got three, again, um, adverbs here, these, these verbal participles that are going to help us um, kind of see what does that look like? Okay, how do we go make disciples? Well, the first thing he says is you're going and making disciples, okay? There's this, this, this sense of being sent out. You're going and doing something, okay? It's, it's intentional. You're going out. We, we might call this like an incarnational type approach to discipleship. So, so you go to people, right? So instead of, instead of waiting for the person on the street to come to church and hear the news, in some sense, I'm responsible for taking the news to them. Does that make sense? We don't put requirements, right, on, on how people are going to come to know and to follow Christ. We go, as you go, going, make disciples. And then we, we realize and we recognize that according to the scriptures, this job, this mission is the work of all Christians. Again, I think for so long we've exported it to a few. And in so doing, we've, we've crippled the church. We've crippled her mission. We've crippled her health. I think, again, if you were to, to ask Jesus, I honestly think this, about kind of the last 2,000 years and some of the mess-ups we've had. 
I think one of his answers, I don't know if this would cover it completely, I think one of his answers would be, y'all have failed. Why, why did it look the way it looked? Because y'all weren't the people I called you to be. Sometimes we think, what does Jesus do? I mean, this is, I think, sometimes why we push Jesus' victory all the way to the future. Because we feel like, looking back since Jesus was here, there hasn't been that much victory happened. Right? You've got the Holocaust. There's only in World War II. And what kind of kingdom does that look like? If Jesus really reigns, why is that happening? And Jesus might go, why is a Christian nation the one doing the Holocaust? Where's the church? Why isn't she doing what she's supposed to have been doing? We've, we've so divulged ourselves of all responsibility that I think we are the cause of some of our own problems. Does that make sense? And that if we put the blame on God, sometimes he might turn around and put it back on us and go, what were you doing? Do you, do you, have you not read these texts I've given you? Have you not talked to people who have gone before who's carried down this message from the apostles? You all had a job to do. But because you were scared or felt ill-equipped or just didn't understand or take the time to think through it, you left it alone. And did things get a mess? Yeah, they got a mess. But it's not because I wasn't doing my job. It's because you weren't fulfilling your role in the mission I laid out for you. Just go and make disciples. It's not just experts. Um, one of the phrases we've used before is conversion is commission. Does that make sense? The moment you're converted, the moment you start to believe in Christ, is the moment you now have a new mission. You now have a new purpose. Part of, I think, what it means to become a Christian is to understand your entire life is a new goal. So before, you may have thought your goal was to be a good father or good mother and to be the best engineer or the best teacher you could possibly be. Now you come to realize that while those maybe aren't bad goals and maybe can fit in, your number one goal is to spread the news of the gospel, the good news. You adopt this, this kind of missionary aspect. Um, we might say that sheep make sheep, not shepherds. I'm not going to diagram that out for you, okay? That's advanced <laughs> biology. <laughs> the idea is, right, it's not the pastor's job to make more disciples. Right? It's sheep. Sheep make sheep. The shepherds take care of the sheep who are making more sheep. <laughs> nailed it. I've been, I've been getting some slack lately for some things I've said about forming <laughs> the past few weeks, so I made sure I had a good one here. Right? I mean, this is the model the New Testament lays out for us. That ministers, I, don't, I can't recover from that, ministers, <laughs> teachers, apostles, their role is to make sure the church is healthy and doing what she's supposed to be doing. It's not to do the work of the church. In Ephesians 4, it's to prepare the church to do her work. The sheep make the sheep, not the shepherds. Um, we might say that, that found people find people. right? I mean, this is our job. This is what it means to be a Christian, to adopt this kind of missionary attitude, this missionary outlook in the world. And, and it, it, it means, it requires, involves understanding that your whole life is your mission field. right? I mean, you're, you're 24 hours, your life. You don't have to go somewhere new to do this. right? You don't have to put on new clothes, put on a new hat, travel, sell everything you have. Your life is your mission field. The people that you know, that you have relationships with, that's your, that's your unreached people group. You can probably divide your life up into three parts. So you've got home, and you've got work, and then you've got like play places. Not like McDonald's, don't be that creepy person, right? <laughs> but like places of recreation. You're, the place where you go and enjoy yourself, right? Maybe you go to the gym, or you go to sporting events, or you are in like a boating club, or whatever it is, right? 
And I think most of us as adults, that's where we spend almost all of our time. You're at home with your family, or you're at work with your coworkers, or you're at kind of this recreational hobby place. And you've got these built-in groups of relationships at these places. Well, I've got news for you. That's your strategy. That's what you're saying, go to. Going to those people. Discipling them. Taking the good news to them. I think, again, one of the things maybe we've done wrong with evangelism is we've taken it out of the context of relationships where people trust us and know us and we're simply inviting them into the life we've found. And we've taken it to the place of, like, tracks on a street corner with signs, right? I don't think it's been very effective for us. I remember meeting a young man a few years ago who was describing to me something his youth group was doing. They'd go stand outside of a movie theater on Friday, Saturday nights all the kids out there, and they'd pass out tracks, and they'd done it for like two years. And as I'm listening, I'm just like, wow, I would never do that. I mean, I, not even, I wouldn't have my group do it. If I was a part of a group, I wouldn't go do it. That's just weird and awkward. And, and I was like, so what, I mean, surely this has been like a super successful thing for you. I mean, every, I mean, every Friday night and Saturday night. And this young man I met was one of the most sincere, genuine people I've ever met. I mean, beautiful heart. And he said, well, no, we haven't actually seen one person even like come to church because of it but we're sowing the seeds. And I just thought, maybe there's a better thing for you to do on Friday or Saturday night. Maybe that's not sowing the seeds, passing out tracts. But I know this, I mean, it's high school kids. I mean, I'm a pastor, but if I'm at 4th of July event, okay, and someone hands me a track, I'm not looking at it. I'm going to find the closest place I can to set it down and throw it away. I'm just not interested. I don't think many people are. Maybe on Friday or Saturday night, though, you're with a group of people you already know on your basketball team or your baseball team or your coworkers or your friends or your neighborhood, right, who already have a relationship with you, who trust you, you have this built-in connection with, and that's who you're focusing on. That's who you're investing in. I think that would be a much more worthy strategy for us as the church. I think we see more fruit there. Um, we have a, I have a quote here in our worship guide by Lee Camp. Uh, he says this, If the good news of the gospel is the presence of the kingdom of God, now, again, that one phrase is going to be something we hit on all the time at First Colony. When you read the Gospels, they're called the good news. What they're all about is that the kingdom is here, the presence of the kingdom. And if the good news is the presence of the kingdom of God, here's what Kant says, then evangelism is much more than saving souls. <clears throat> evangelism means sharing and showing to the world how to realistically, faithfully, and creatively respond to the real needs of a world laboring under ongoing rebellion. Evangelism, hear this, means living according to the ways of the kingdom of God and inviting others to join us on the way. Saying, hey, this, this way of living with your money, this capitalistic, materialistic, consumeristic way of living with money, is not the best way for a human to flourish. It's not what life is supposed to be like. But look what life is like when we use our money the way Jesus intended us to. Kingdom economics. We show them that and we invite them into that life. Evangelism is not about selling Jesus, but showing Jesus. Evangelism is not mere telling about Christ, but about being Christ, about being many Christ. So Jesus going, make disciples. This next one, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in the name of the triune God and the power. That's what name usually stands for in the New Testament. And the power, authority of the triune God and the work that he has and is accomplishing in creation. Baptize these people. Put them into water, take them out of water. Now, baptism is kind of the initiation ceremony of the Christian community. Historically, that's what it's been. It's been, this is how you're now part of our group. We baptize you and you're in. Kind of like an induction ceremony, if you will. And <clears throat> baptism has these kind of all these different layers to it. But, but one of them, two of them, the first would be 
it's this way of identifying and showing the world, showing others that you have identified with the work of the triune God. Paul says you're, you're buried with him in, in the water with his death and you're risen to walk in newness of life. You're united with Christ. There's this spiritual reality for believers in the New Testament. Baptism symbolizes, it shows that. It witnesses to that. It's, it's in a sense like a marriage vow, right? Where you say, I'm committing to this person. I'm with them, they're with me. Our fates are now eternally intertwined. I'm united with him in his death. I'm united with him in his resurrection. And again, baptism is also this, this commitment to the people of God. It's this commitment to the people who are on mission. That's one of the things, okay, if, if you really understand your call as a Christian to be on mission, you're going to need other people. You're going to need a community to back you up, to be able to support you, to be able to grow with you, to be able to compile resources together. You're going to have a hard time really making disciples the way you need to watching online services. Does that make sense? You need flesh and bone people with you who smell bad, right, who wear tacky things, who have different opinions and political beliefs than you, that you're going to rub off, off against an, an iron sharpening iron and slowly but surely you're growing together and you're going out on mission and you're seeing disciples being made. So going, baptizing, this last one, teaching. Jesus is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Not enough to, to dunk and dump, right? You, this is what we call discipleship. You should just growing in maturity and obedience. Reproducing a life of obedience as modeled and taught by Jesus. So in Matthew, I think the primary thing you want to go back and look at is the Sermon on the Mount. There's just kind of marching orders to disciples. This is what life looks like in the kingdom. Well, as we go and make disciples, one of the, the roles here for, okay, you go and you, you baptize and then you teach. You say, this is what it looks like. This is how we obey. This is how we follow him. This is what it looks like to forgive others, to love our enemies, to spend our money generously, to for, forgive and grow with each other, to go out on mission. It's what it looks like to pray. It's what it looks like to read the Bible. And we see this word teach, okay? And, and I think most of us think of the word teach in an automatically academic setting. So when you think of how teaching is done, you think of a classroom, Okay, and you've got desks and tables and chairs and a whiteboard and all those things. And again, most of you turn off. Okay, now I happen to be a high school teacher, and my classroom is amazing. Okay, it's brilliant. <laughs> but I think again, on the we think of teaching as that kind of sterile classroom environment. But that's really not, I think, where most real teaching happens in the world, even today. That's definitely what Jesus means when he says this. Okay, now in the Gospels, you have two words: preaching and teaching. Preaching refers to talking to outsiders. So announcing the gospel, inviting into repentance and belief. Teaching, though, always refers to other believers. It's a growing in maturity and obedience. And teaching happens the same way that Jesus taught his disciples, in this context of close-knit community. It's not an academic, sterile setting. It's a, a mentoring setting. It's a kind of a one-on-one -on -one or small group setting. And if you really think about it, this is how you kind of have to learn these kind of truths. I just don't think you're going to be very effective learning how to pray by yourself. I think if you really want to learn how to pray, it's going to work best for you watching other people pray who've been doing it for a long time. Asking them their secrets. Getting their input. I think it works the same for the Bible. I think it works the same for learning how to love other people. I think it works the same for how to serve and contribute to the community and to your church. We teach. We model. We mentor. We disciple others into obedience. She says... Go in and make disciples, baptizing, make disciples, teaching, make disciples. And then he gives us his last, the end of the frame here of these theological truths, this promise. Behold, he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. 
there's kind of this inclusio that's made here with the beginning of Matthew, okay? So in the beginning of Matthew, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And at the very end of Matthew, he says what? I'll be with you always. This is God, his presence coming down to be with creation, to be with his people. I'll be with you always. And he says this, to the end of the age, to the end of this mission, this movement that I've started. I'll be with you. You'll have my presence. Notice real quick here, his presence is not promised outside of the context of mission. Do you see that? This is not a generic promise. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I'll be with you always. I'll be with you always as you go and as you baptize and as you teach. As you continue on this work that I have started. Again, Luke and Acts would say this is a church. When they're doing what they're supposed to do, it's really Jesus continuing to do what he had started to do in the Gospels. We call this passage the Great Commission. And this is kind of the, the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church. And again, the kind of goal that we're aiming at here at FC Cubed. This is where we're trying to go. And so we'll wrap up this morning with a couple questions. First question is this. Where are you as a disciple of Jesus? Okay, so again, kind of first level here is you've got to be a disciple. You've got to be one who's committed to following and knowing and obeying Christ. Have you done that? If not... Are you, are you ready to? And then discipleship is not something that really ever ends, right? You never get to check that off the list. And you say, oh, I follow him now. I mean, it's an everyday kind of thing where you're constantly rising ways where, where you need to follow him more. And areas where you need to repent. Areas where you need to step out in faith and obedience even more. That's the, the first question I want to pose to you. The second question is this. Where are you as a disciple maker? I think if you're not careful... You'll wake up in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years and 50 years. And you'll come across a text like this. And you'll ask yourself, who have I made a disciple? And you might not like the answer. Maybe you, you come face to face finally with Jesus. And he goes, hey, I love that you started believing in me and following me. So who else did you get on board? What you, would you do with all that time you had? And you might be forced to say, well, I went to church. Played games. Did my best to obey you in, in various areas. Jesus would go, well, what, what disciples do you have? And who have you made look like me the same way you look like me? And you'll say, well, I was in church for 40 years, but I can't, I can't name one. Because you weren't intentionally investing. You hadn't really adopted that as the core of who you are and why you exist and why God has given you the grace and salvation that he's given you. I mean, if there's maybe one thing I'd leave you with today, it would be don't wake up in 40 years and have to wonder who you discipled, who you poured into. And one of the things we, we kind of challenged here at FCQ at the beginning of the year is, is, hey, let's set a goal. Everybody, one person this year. Let's have one person, just as this goal, okay, we're not going to feel guilty you don't reach it, one person that we have actively poured into, invested into, and seen discipled because of us in this year. They've come to know Christ. They've been baptized. They've come to slowly walk in maturity and obedience. They've come and been a part of our church community. We can point to them and say, I've been making a disciple. This is the person I've been pouring into. This person I've been praying for. I think that's a question worthy of asking yourself, worthy of spending time with this morning. We'll close with this. I think if you, uh, if you want to be a disciple maker, I have two things for you. There's no easy formulas or, or, or quick steps or anything like that. 
One that I think the first big step you can take is to start to see your entire life as a mission field. I think that one step is a big deal in, in being able to get to this point in your life. And then number two, I think you've got to be intentional. You can't take time off. That's something that I struggle with. I'll take a day off, two days off, a week off. And I wake up and go, what was I really doing that was important during this week? You've got to be intentional with the way you see the people around you, with the way you talk to the people around you, with the way you play with the people around you. You've got to be intentional with the way you pray. I mean, this has got to be just a great measuring test. In the last week, how many people who don't know Jesus have you prayed would come to know Jesus? And if the answer is zero, I'm, again, I'm not trying to like, like spank you in front of everybody. I'm not trying to, to make you feel really bad. I'm just trying to go, maybe... That's an area of growth for us. Maybe that's a place where we can step out in obedience this next week. And we can look around at our lives and say, who doesn't know Christ? Who's not experiencing the life of the kingdom? And, and it's, not a, it's not a small step to start praying for them. To bring them up to God. And ask the Holy Spirit to start working on their heart. I mean, that's no, that's no small and worthless thing. I mean, that's all you do in your life. I think you've, you've done a lot. Intentionally see, intentionally talk, intentionally play, and intentionally pray. As a church, we want to be people who glorify God as we make disciples, making disciples. And as individuals, I challenge you to be somebody who glorifies God by making disciple, making disciples. Let's pray together.